This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Merrill Westall. I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> There's a rumor going around uh, that they're trying to start up a basketball program here. <laughs> Can anybody confirm that for me? <laughs> Two points. Uh, they asked me to sign a waiver on uh, having cameras on this thing, and I did. And I put down my normal three caveats. Um, number one, I didn't say it. Second, uh, it was taken out of context. <laughs> Third, I promised never to say it again. <laughs> they told me I should go into politics. <laughs> I think any discussion of postmodernism requires uh, a one given account of what modernity one has in mind. And I'm obviously talking about philosophy, not architecture or movies uh, that get labeled postmodern. Um, and the philosophical modernity uh, that I'm thinking of is uh, sometimes referred to as the Enlightenment Project, which could be described as the project of moving from mythos to logos, from tradition to critique, and from authority to autonomy, um, all within the framework of a conception of reason as universal. Uh, that is to say, uh, not rendered particular by being relative to any particular presuppositions or horizons. Um, what uh, Aaron was saying yesterday about objectivity um, is uh, another way of saying the same thing, I think. Uh, my thought is objective if it isn't rendered subjective by being relative to some particular presuppositions, assumptions, um, metaphysical uh, uh, commitments, and so forth. Now, in the philosophy of religion, that project, I think, is best described by uh, stealing the title of Kant's so-called fourth critique, religion within the limits of reason alone. And uh, my view is that the best 17th century version of that project is Spinoza's, and the best 18th century version of that project is Kant's, and the best 19th century version is Hegel's. By the best, I mean most powerful. Um, there are lots of people who contributed to that project, but I think none with greater philosophical power than that particular trio. Um, and I want to make several uh, observations about them uh, as, uh, if you like, the, the holy trinity of modernity uh, so far as philosophy is concerned. Uh, all of them are committed to this notion of reason as universal and all of them present their philosophies as the voice of universal reason. Uh, the problem is that each is deeply incompatible with both of the other two. And one doesn't have to be very far into either of them uh, to discover that, so far as the substance is concerned, uh, that's the case. Uh, and so I find myself thinking that um, what they should have done is use some superscripts or some subscripts and said, I'm appealing to reason sub S, and I'm appealing to reason sub K, and I'm appealing to reason sub H, um, each of which is unfortunately uh, for their project uh, quite 
particular. And it seems to me that those three versions of reason um, are as particular as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, or uh, borrowing Will Herberg's title from uh, a sociology of American religion in the 50s, uh, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. Um, so the, the project of, of escaping from particularity um, and becoming the voice of uh, universal reason, and dare I say, uh, deconstructs itself without much help from us. Um, and if Jesus were to encounter the reason to which uh, this trio appeals and ask, what is your name? I think the answer would have to be, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, in relationship to that conception um, of reason, um, I want to suggest that postmodernism should be thought of in big tent terms, although I will lapse into talking about the usual suspects. Um, but wherever that concept of reason is seriously challenged, it seems to me we have a philosophical activity that is postmodern. Um, it uh, seeks to expose the mythos of modernity logos uh, and show it to be, to, to demythologize it, if you like. So, uh, wh where does one find postmodern philosophy in that big tent sense? Um, certainly in French post structuralism, also in philosophical hermeneutics as developed by Gadamer and, and um, Recur and McIntyre and Heidegger for that matter. Uh, also in hermeneutical philosophy of science as developed by uh, Kuhn and Feyerabend and Hansen uh, and others. One finds it in American pragmatism, especially John Dewey and C.I. Lewis. Uh, and one finds it in uh, analytic philosophy uh, wherever one finds um, a critique of the strong foundationalism that was part of modernity's project much of the time. And so Rorty offers a critique of privileged representations and Sellers offers, a, my teacher Sellers, uh, offers a critique of the myth of the given. Um, and uh, reformed epistemology um, as developed by Plantinga and Waltersdorf um, offers a critique of strong foundationalism that appeals to propositions that are either self-evident or evident to the senses or incorrigible. Um, that's usually applied to three-year-olds. Um, in this case, um, it's applied to propositions like uh, my tooth hurts. Um, and Derrida, I think, would see all of those uh, pseudo-foundations, uh, that is, those that these postmodernisms resist, as appeals to sheer presence. So there are lots of different vocabularies that uh, have been developed, and uh, it seems to me that we do well to be multilingual uh, and recognize um, when different terms are pointing in more or less the same direction. I don't want to say synonyms in the strictest sense of the term, um, but they're making, um, it seems to me, the same point. So uh, Rorty, when he makes the hermeneutical turn in philosophy in the mirror of nature, 
devotes a great deal of time to Derrida and Dewey and Heidegger and Gadamer and Kuhn and Nietzsche and Putnam and Quine and Sellers and Wittgenstein. And in my way of thinking, all of them deserve the title postmodern. They all critique that feature of modernity. Uh, Nancy Murphy has a nice little book called Anglo-American Postmodernism. And she, with her sort of left hand, uh, alludes to deconstruction and post-structuralism, about which she doesn't know very much. But she's talking about Anglo-American postmodernism. And so she focuses on Feyerabend, uh, under whom she studied, and Kuhn, and Quine, and Sellers, and Wittgenstein. Um, so that's a, a rough sketch of what I mean by uh, big tent postmodernity. Um, and uh, what I want to say most generally about it um, is that uh, Christianity can welcome and appropriate the postmodern term. When I say Christianity instead of religion, uh, partly because I'm a Christian, partly because Christianity is the religion that's most involved in the discussions, um, partly because I don't want to pretend I know what religion is, you know, from yesterday's discussion, partly because uh, while I think that mutatis mutandis, what I have to say uh, has some bearing on the other uh, Abrahamic monotheisms, uh, I don't have any pretense to be speaking here about uh, the Asian uh, religions. Um, and so I'll speak about Christianity from time to time. And by that, I mean mere Christianity, uh, borrowing Lewis's phrase, not necessarily his particular presentation of it. Um, mere Christianity is, is that Christianity that is um, expressed, for example, in the ecumenical councils, it is shared by the Eastern Orthodox churches, by the Roman Catholic Church, um, and by the Protestant churches. Um, and there is a great deal that is shared across those traditions in spite of very significant differences among them. <clears throat> now, um, insofar as deconstruction um, is the demythologizing of modernity by taking the hermeneutical turn, and I find that phrase the most helpful overall description, the hermeneutical term, is what distinguishes um, modernity and from post-modernity, or distinguishes post-modernity from modernity. Um, the awareness of the uh, situatedness of human thinking in some particular horizon, in some language game, in some paradigm, um, in some set of presuppositions, um, even if you want to think with Spinoza, a certain set of axioms or uh, thoughts that function as axioms for uh, certain uh, thinkers. Um, the recognizing of that particularity, um, which um, suggests that um, the, the notion of some neutral standpoint at which one could stand to a judge among rival uh, thoughts is itself um, uh, illusory, and that the reasons one gives in support of one's own preferences uh, tend to be internal uh, to that system, although sometimes they're shared by other systems, what uh, Rawls calls overlapping consensus. Uh, that's, that's a reality too, um, but uh, if you take the hermeneutical turn, you don't assume that the overlapping consensus 
um, is some sort of universally shared um, point of view. So I say Christianity can welcome and uh, incorporate um, the fundamental move of postmodern philosophy, um, <clears throat> partly because it's a theory about the finitude of human knowledge, and that from a theological point of view uh, in a Christian context expresses the doctrine of creation. God is the creator and we are not, um, and in a whole variety of ways because of that we are finite and not infinite. Um, at the same time, uh, the hermeneutics of suspicion has played a significant role in postmodern philosophy, and the hermeneutics of suspicion corresponds to the theological notion of sinfulness, um, in which uh, our desires, including especially those desires that we don't wish to acknowledge to ourselves, and that we manage to hide from ourselves in what Sartre calls bad faith, um, play a significant role in shaping our beliefs uh, and our practices. We, we believe and do uh, what we would like to do uh, for motives that we um, do our best uh, to keep hidden from ourselves. My uh, translation of Sartre's notion of bad faith is managing not to notice. Um, and I think that captures uh, his sense um, that we really do know, in some important sense, what's going on. Um, but we manage not to know at the same time. That's a, conceptually, that sounds like a real trick. But uh, I think each of us knows from our own experience that it's much easier to do than it is to explain. Uh, thirdly, um, there is a theme in the hermeneutical turn um, in, in which we are particularized in relation to others who are not making our assumptions, who are not part of our language game, uh, and so forth. Um, and it's what I call inverted intentionality. This is the Levinasian moment. Um, and uh, this correspond, can be made to correspond uh, to the uh, notion of existence coram deo, uh, before the face of God. Um, insofar as uh, uh, Derrida formulates this theme uh, in a different context, non-theistic context, um, my gaze is no longer the measure of things. Um, and uh, the way I like to put it is that in being seen and in being addressed, when the intentional arrows are coming at me from some other, um, instead of my being the source of the intentional arrows that confer meaning, Zin Gable, um, meaning is uh, defined um, for me, um, sometimes as an assault, sometimes as a gift. Um, one can think of Abraham, for example, uh, who was given uh, a name and a mission um, that he had not planned for himself and didn't always welcome. Uh, I would rather think uh, for the moment of Mary. Um, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. Now our minds almost immediately go to favor. And that's appropriate. But I want to direct our minds right now to, he has looked upon me 
Um, Mary was given a new identity, a new mission in life, one she didn't cho choose, probably one she didn't even hope for, one that scared her, I was about to say scared the hell out of her. Um, maybe it did, maybe that's why she was so holy. <laughs> but she didn't uh, set the agenda for her life, it was given to her. Um, and it took some doing to recognize that this was a gift. But even before that comes, she had already responded in the uh, way that uh, Christian faith says we ought to respond to being decentered in this way. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Uh, let it be with me according to your word. Of course, she says that to the angel Gabriel, but she understood that he was speaking on behalf of God when she said that. So my suggestion is that Mary has been reading Levinas. Um, and that when we read Levinas, we can think back to uh, a whole variety of biblical contexts and motifs which are illuminated by the way in which he develops um, the notion of inverted intentionality in the face. Um, and for that matter, when we read Sartre's analysis of the look, I take Sartre to be the greatest theologian of original sin since Augustine. He doesn't call it sin, but um, his analysis of our desperate attempt to objectify the look that comes to us and be the one who's doing the looking rather than the one who um, is looked at um, is, is a very powerful analysis of something we can all recognize easily in others um, and also in ourselves if we are willing to take a, a long hard look and he has a, a way of formulating the theological implications of that he says man is the desire to be God and women too um, Jack Caputo has been reading Levinas too um, and he articulates uh, in, in a way I find helpful um, the, the triumph of heteronomy over enlightenment autonomy that's involved in um, inverted intentionality in, in a Levinasian uh, overtone. He writes, obligation on the other hand is ugly, Jewish, Abrahamic. It is the ugliness of discord and subjection, of being disrupted and disturbed by a call that comes from without. This dispossession and alienation will not do at all in ethics, the ethics he's against, the, the theory that ethics comes from my intentionality, if you like, um, which is uh, philosophy. In philosophy, obligation must always be in one way or another something I do myself, just as in philosophy, truth is something I have or am myself. In another place he writes, obligation is not a rational utterance, a logos, received on the other end as wholly intelligible and hence as worthy of being obeyed. That would make it mine, me, a case of autonomy and auto-dictation. There is also um, a linguistic as well as a Levinasian uh, critique of autonomy um, to be found in, in Derrida, 
Um, that is to say, I, I had articulated the inverse intentionality in terms of being seen and being addressed. Um, and this isn't quite either of those. Um, but this is how Derrida puts it. Um, whenever we speak, quote, uh, it is already too late. Language has started without us and in us, before us. There would be no responsibility without this prior coming of the trace, or if autonomy were first or absolute. Autonomy itself would not be possible. End of quotation. In other words, any autonomy is particular and is relative to what other heteronomy defines the hermeneutical circle in which we operate. Or when he says language has already begun without us, we are born into a language game, or more precisely, an intersecting network of language games. And uh, our thinking is ours, but it's always in some way dependent upon what we have inherited um, and by which we are conditioned um, so that we are never at the, uh, the starting point. Um, and whatever is uniquely ours is never fully uniquely ours, but always depending on something we have borrowed uh, or inherited. Um, and one can, um, uh, I think, happily use the notion of language games here and not just language, because it isn't just speaking that's involved, it's the forms of life um, which are shaped by and give substance to uh, different modes of speaking. Um, the, form, the, the practices support the speaking and the speaking uh, supports the practices and, and so forth. Now this, this way of thinking, this um, triple heteronomy of created finitude and fallen guiltiness and uh, inverse, inverse intentionality, decenteredness, um, can be welcomed and appropriated by mere Christianity uh, precisely because the Christian narrative is a narrative about a triple heteronomy creation and the fall and redemption. In each case, uh, God is first and we come along afterwards. Uh, God is the center and we are the periphery. Um, and so we can read uh, the various kinds of postmodern philosophy that articulate uh, one or more of these um, modes of uh, non-universal reason. Um, as being friendly uh, to mere Christianity. Now, this is not just an epistemological critique, although it is certainly that, but it has existential import as well. Here I'm quoting uh, Stephanos Gerolanus. Ger he says, once the horizon of, ex of existence and thought the human being became a self-doubting mystery lacking all existence or epistemic certainty other than its own death. Humanism appeared to many philosophers and writers as an indefensible foundation of modernity that needed to be overcome. The very process of thinking and defining the human 
imploded the conceptual foundation of modern thought into an unstable category, even an aporia. Um, that epistemological theme of repudiating objectivism and universal reason um, is in effect a way of re-understanding what it is to be a human being and a challenge to the humanism that defines human being in terms of uh, an exaggerated conception of what reason uh, might be. Um, and here I'm reminded of the opening paragraphs of uh, Calvin's Institutes uh, where Calvin insists that uh, our knowledge of ourselves is always dependent upon and derivative from our knowledge of God. Um, and if it isn't uh, in that way um, derived, it's likely to be uh, misleading and uh, corrupted. Now I want to speak uh, more particularly about a couple of the usual suspects, as, as I promised. Um, Heidegger and uh, Derrida. I want to call attention to the fact that neither of them has abandoned the project of religion within the limits of reason alone. And each of them carries on that project um, in his own way. In the case of Heidegger, I'm thinking of his essay, Phenomenology and Theology, which is contemporary with Being in Time, in which he tells us that it's the task of philosophy, namely Heideggerian phenomenology. Uh, most of us, when we say philosophy, mean my philosophy. <laughs> uh, it's the task of philosophy to correct theology. Um, Jeff talked uh, yesterday about uh, what he takes to be an unhappy uh, division between philosophy and theology um, uh, in Heidegger, but um, what I'm finding uh, problematic is not so much the distinction between them uh, as the relationship that is postulated uh, between them. The distinction between them has a, a long and I think fairly respectable heritage. Um, uh, it, it came to be in a, in a usage that never had any formal ratification that philosophy signified thinking about things including matters religious uh, without appeal to revelation as having any norm, biblical revelation um, and the, the, the teachings and traditions of the church as having any normative significance, unaided human reason, uh, whereas theology was understood to um, be an attempt to think about these things uh, on the assumption that there was some a specifically religious norm, whether that was scripture or scripture and tradition or scripture and tradition as uh, prescribed by the uh, uh, by the church or or whatever. So when he, when he distinguishes, uh, as we'll see, uh, he's he's working with that distinction, which he inherits, uh, and it's the task of philosophy to correct. I counted once uh, in the English translation nine separate times in which he says it's the task of philosophy to correct theology. He says that the inconceivable, his word, subject of theology, uh, quote now, is indeed to be, if it is to indeed to disclose properly, in other words, if this doesn't happen, it's not proper discourse, 
it can only be by way of an appropriate conceptual interpretation. Without this appropriate conceptual interpretation, the discourse is inappropriate. And uh, he'll, he'll tell us that this happens when the ontic concepts of theology are corrected by phenomenology and thus, quote, ontologically determined by a content that is pre-Christian and that can be grasped purely rationally. Now, I'm sure by pre-Christian he didn't mean Babylonian and Greek and Roman and so forth. What he means by pre-Christian is purely rationally. That is to say, by human reason without any appeal uh, to specifically religious norms and uh, in particular uh, Christian norms. Um, now this, this seems to me uh, simply a continuation of the project of Spinoza uh, and Kant and Hegel and many others um, with a different conception of reason Although when he talks about purely rationally and pre-Christian, he seems to be, I don't know if this really happens or not, but it makes me wonder whether he applies his own theory of the hermeneutical character of understanding to being in time itself as one particular perspective. Here's a set of concepts that one could use in theology, but why use these rather than some other? Well, these are purely rational conceptions. And, and that sounds a whole lot more modern to me than it does postmodern. Um, and uh, that, it seems to me, um, a mere Christian should resist. Uh, that any uh, philosophical system uh, should have a normative authority uh, over theological discourse. This is not to say that theological discourse should be immune to critique from friendly sources and from unfriendly sources. But to set things up so that one particular philosophical um, vocabulary or system of thought um, uh, is the last word, is the norm by which uh, theological discourse is supposed to be corrected. Um, and that, that, that strikes me as um, uh, far too modern for somebody who wants to keep uh, his postmodern union card. Derrida explicitly appeals to the project of religion within the limits of reason alone um, in faith and knowledge and tells us that in a sense he's going to be working out that project um, in his own way and uh, we know in advance that he's not going to be appealing uh, to a universal reason um, in the way in which uh, Spinoza, Kant, and Hegel do. Um, and he offers a series of corrections, although I don't know any place where he specifically says that it's the task of philosophy to correct theology, but he does offer um, corrections, and the first correction is negative. And uh, I'm quoting here from the gift of death, not from religion and knowledge, but from faith and knowledge. But we should stop thinking about God as someone over there, way up there, transcendent, and what is more capable, more than any satellite orbiting in space, of seeing into the most secret of the most interior places. And that concept of God, he says, is an idolatrous stereotype. 
the second correction, um, uh, corrections plural, I guess I should say, is positive. It's the replacement of that God um, with another God, uh, or with perhaps more than one other God. I'm not quite clear whether these are supposed to be two definitions of the same God or whether he has a postmodern polytheism at work. Um, God, he says, is, and I'm quoting here, is the name of the possibility I have of keeping a secret that is visible from the interior but not from the exterior. He told us in the previous one that we should not be thinking about God as a transcendent being. So what, what should we mean by the term God? It's the name of this possibility I have of keeping secrets. Or God is the name, quote, of the absolute singularity of the other. Um, every other is wholly other. Um, or um, God means that language has started without us and before us. When he gives that line in the passage I quoted earlier, he says, and this is what theologians call God. He's quite wrong about that. This is not what theologians call God. This is what Derrida calls God. <laughs> when a theologian says God, Derrida says, okay, I mean by that, language has started without us. So, uh, three comments. These uh, persuasive redefinitions of God differ so dramatically from what the Abrahamic monotheisms have meant by God for millennia that they do not even rise to the level of heresy within those traditions. Uh, we should recognize them for what they are. Dramatic alternatives to those traditions and all-out assaults on those traditions. Secondly, I commend Derrida for the candor of his atheism and note its affinity with Feuerbach. For what God signifies is always something human, not a transcendent being, but human interiority or interhuman alterity. Thirdly, what Christians should repudiate about Derrida is his atheism and not his deconstruction. The latter is, a, as I understand it, the latter is a theory of language and a method of reading that have no logical or conceptual links that I can detect with the atheism. The two sit side by side in Derrida. There's a spatial contiguity, even if there's no logical or conceptual linkage. But they could equally well sit by side with a robust Christian theism in which God is a personal being, an agent and not merely a cause, a performer of speech acts, most specifically commands and promises. We were threatened last night with the task of defining God later on this afternoon. Um, I just did. When I use the word God, uh, what I'm thinking about is a personal being who is an agent and not merely a cause, uh, and who is a performer of speech acts, most specifically uh, commands and promises. Whether there are some omnis that should be attached to this personal being is a question I think is a perfectly legitimate uh, question to ask. Um, but the heart of the matter, uh, as I understand theism, is these features that I've mentioned 
um, and not the not the abstract metaphysical um, concepts, some of which may very well be appropriate, um, and some of which maybe uh, are not. So, um, how has postmodernism affected religion? Um, if that means the religion out there among ordinary people that's surveyed by Gallup polls from time to time and so forth. I really don't know. I'm not in a position to have a very good knowledge of that. I can tell you that when I talk about the hermeneutical turn in the context of religious communities, which I sometimes suspect will be resistant, I'm often, not always, but I'm often surprised to find them more open than I expected to the kinds of insights that, that I've been talking about as the hermeneutical term or the postmodern uh, term. And so maybe there's been some diffusion, some trickle down. I mean, two terms have, have entered into the ordinary vocabulary, uh, paradigm shift and deconstruction. Um, when people use the term paradigm shift, I always get the sense that they have an idea what that means. And whenever they use the term, I'm talking about non-academics now, when they use the term deconstruction, I always have the sense that they don't have a clue what that means. Um, but that it, it means somehow unraveling, but nothing more specific or concrete than that. Uh, within the academic context, Postmodernism has provided an opportunity for some to pursue the not especially humble project of religion within the limits of reason alone, that is the project of correcting Christianity, with a humbler conception of reason than modernity had when it undertook that project. And it has provided for mere Christians uh, some new ways of expressing basic insights and long-standing commitments about our finitude, our fallenness, and our decentered heteronymous location uh, before the God of the Bible. Uh, ontotheology was mentioned yesterday, and uh, I want to conclude by saying uh, what I understand by ontotheology and what I think about it, about Heidegger's critique of it. It isn't as much the case now as it used to be, but there was a while when a lot of people bandied that term about very loosely uh, without giving it any precise meaning, but it functioned sort of to uh, discredit any form of theism of the sort that I have in mind when I talk about uh, the Abrahamic monotheisms. Uh, all you had to do is say uh, ontotheology in a sufficiently solemn tone of voice, uh, and you had cleared the deck of that. Now we can go on and talk about what's left. Um, Heidegger was much more specific than that and uh, of course in, in the world of, of uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland anybody's free to make any term mean whatever they want to and anybody can mean by ontotheology whatever they want to but they shouldn't pretend that they're talking about Heidegger's critique of ontotheology unless they stick a little closer than that. So, for Heidegger, what is, what's the what of ontotheology? 
that God is the highest being who is the key to the meaning of the whole of being and to think in these terms is to engage in the forgetfulness of being which is not a being, even the highest being. Of course, that leaves open space for lots of candidates to come and plug in as the highest being. doesn't need to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although that's obviously one possible candidate. The why of ontotheology. Uh, to, re to render the whole of being intelligible to human understanding. Uh, to convert mystery into transparency. Um, and this is why, for me, Spinoza and Hegel are particularly good examples of the kind of thing that um, Heidegger has in mind. And Aquinas is not, because for Aquinas, uh, mystery is not dissolved in transparency, uh, but remains, um, even before that famous mystical term, which uh, may have occurred towards the end of his life. To the how of ontotheology by means of the principle of sufficient reason and by means of abstract and personal metaphysical concepts <clears throat> such as causa prima, ultima ratio, and causa sui um, the rule by which ontotheology progresses quote the deity can come into philosophy only insofar as philosophy of its own accord and by its own nature requires and determines that and how the deity enters into it. Heidegger himself, it seems to me, is a prize example of ontotheology in that respect, insofar as uh, he says that God can enter into our discourse only insofar as it's been corrected uh, by his philosophical discourse. Uh, philosophy sets the rules that God must um, uh, conform to uh, in order to be uh, appropriately expressed. And finally, the result, um, again, a very familiar quotation, man can neither pray nor sacrifice uh, before the cause of sui cannot fall to his knees in awe or to play music or dance uh, before this God. Um, but it seems to me that the project of rendering everything intelligible, uh, the primacy of abstract impersonal metaphysical concepts, uh, the notion that deity should have a normative uh, authority over uh, our God talk and our theological discourse and practices, um, all of those um, represent uh, an ontological possibility that Christian thinkers should resist. Um, precisely for the reason Heidegger gives. Um, you deprive that God of any uh, serious religious significance uh, when you do that. Um, so my suggestion is that uh, for Christian theology, uh, ontotheology in the Heideggerian sense um, is never the appropriate essence of the, or uh, rule of the game. Um, but it's always a temptation in some form. Um, every theological system uh, is subject to the temptation of thinking um, we've got God in our categories and we now understand it. Uh, it, it it's no longer uh, mysterious. Um, and we can operate as if uh, our system of thinking and the practices which they ratify um, 
are the answer uh, to the questions we have. And at that point, theology has rejoined again the modern project uh, of religion within the limits of reason alone, although this is a reason that's been um, formed by revelation while forgetting the significance of revelation as a decentering of our thinking and a relativizing of our thinking. And that's why I'm fond, and this is my final uh, comment, I'm fond of the distinction that Karl Barth makes between revelation and religion. Revelation is something that God does for the monotheistic religions. Um, religion is our reception of it, our interpretation of it, and that's always human, all too human. It's always, if it's serious, the attempt to hear God, not to hear ourselves. But by virtue of our finitude, by virtue of our fallenness, by virtue of our decenteredness, we are never in the position of having finally accomplished that task of being immediately present to the voice of God. Um, we are always somewhat absent, somewhat inattentive, um, somewhat uh, incomprehending uh, of the voice of God. And postmodernism is a good reminder of that. Okay, thank you. Okay. Uh, before I take a question, I want to ask you for a clarification, Dr. Westfall. For people like me who aren't as familiar with Heidegger as we ought to be, I guess, uh, the importance of the forgetfulness of being the second half of that sort of what is the what. Could you talk on that for a second? I don't think even Heidegger knew what he meant by that. <laughs> but Heidegger distinguishes being from beings, things, persons, individuals, whatever. Um, being is, in, in a sense, what they do, they are. Um, better to have been a wasser than never to have ised. Um, and he thinks that Western philosophy hasn't thought the act of being uh, seriously enough because it's been so preoccupied with beings and not sufficiently attentive to the being of beings. And I have always found that distinction to be um, not the most interesting philosophical problem to worry about, partly because I don't fully understand uh, what it signifies, but that's the language he uses for making the distinction. Thank you. Questions? Questions? Thanks for a great talk. Um, you mentioned heteronomy at the kind of towards the beginning, and uh, it seemed to be, maybe I got this wrong, but it seemed to be in the context of, well, we're not autonomous because we're not God, right? So in some sense, is that true? Uh, that's one of the forms okay. that heteronomy can take, but we are heteronomous in relationship to language. Okay. which is there before us right. and to which we are relative because we're shaped by it before we shape it. I mean, even even a, a, a great creator, creative um, linguist like, say, Shakespeare um, inherits a language. He doesn't create it. Um, 
he creates some new moves within it, but the game uh, he inherits. And um, in the Levinasian uh, context, we are heteronymous in relationship to other human beings by whom we are addressed. Uh, that's what Derrida is talking about when he says, every other is holy other. Um, you are other to me. And you make claims on me simply by your presence to me um, that I am not the author of and I'm not the final arbiter of and so forth. So there are lots of different ways in which we're heteronymous, some of which are overtly theistic, but um, one doesn't have to be a theist uh, to um, argue for a priority of heteronomy over uh, autonomy. Yeah, I, I, just want, I just wanted to float something out to you that maybe you think is interesting, maybe not, but something that Thomas does in the Prima Parts of the Summa, he says, of course, God in his simplicity is perfectly one, because he's pure act, right? No composition, no change, that kind of stuff. But also he said God is in some sense uh, a multitude, right? Because he has relations of persons, right? And he says that. He says there's... There's a multitude that's not numerical in nature, and so it's, he calls it a transcendental multitude that's properly predicated of God. I wonder if we could say that uh, God in himself is both one and many. That, that seems to be true for Thomas. And I wonder if it's, it, we're not, the, especially the heteronomy that you mentioned with Levinas right there, we're not, we're not necessarily heteronomous just because we're creatures, but rather we're, we're heteronomous as participations in a God who is himself perfectly <laughs> heteronomous, right? I just wonder what you think about it. Uh, I, I'm with you up until that very last phrase. Um, certainly uh, all mere Christians want to say that God is one and three. Um, and trying to spell that out uh, usually doesn't do much more than articulate the fact that this is a mystery that we cannot render fully transparent to ourselves. Um, but um, the, the fact that there is a Trinitarian diversity, however you spell that out within God, doesn't make God heteronymous. Um, heteros means something other than myself. Uh, from which I derive the law, the namas. There's a law that comes to me from outside. That's the Caputo quote that I was reading earlier um, that has a Levinasian uh, overtone to it. Um, and for uh, mere Christianity and for any Abrahamic monotheism, I believe, um, there isn't anything other than God uh, to which God is relative, except insofar as God has chosen through creation to become relative to those to whom he gives the gift of life. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on Dr. Robbins's thoughts on ontotheology from last night, uh, particularly the statement, God is not dead, God is plastic. God is not dead, God is plastic. <clears throat> um, yeah. Um, well, there's one sense in which uh, that's trivially true. Um, that is to say, our thoughts about God are constantly changing. Uh, they don't stop in the 4th century or the 6th century or in the 12th century or in the 20th century. 
um, like reading any classic text. Um, there's no end to new commentaries that suggest new ways of seeing very familiar texts and so forth. Um, and uh, God is like a text, like a classic text in that way. Um, Paul talks about the inexhaustible riches of God's grace. And so um, God is always changing as we understand because our understanding is always changing as we move through history and our own personal lives and so forth. Now whether God's self is a being who changes, uh, that's another question. And uh, the first thing I would want to ask Jeff is whether God is a being for him. I don't know. Um, if you take the death of God uh, in one very familiar sense, um, God uh, isn't a, a transcendent being. Uh, God is uh, maybe some way of talking about some important dimension of human uh, experience. And if, if God is a name for some dimension of, of human life, then yes, God is plastic because uh, God changes. Uh, so one could take, and I don't know if this is the right way, Jeff will have to tell us, one could assume that when someone says God is plastic, um, God means, uh, that person means by God, um, something which we're very familiar with uh, and which is constantly changing, namely the world of human life and experience. Um, whether God is a transparent being changes, um, that's, a, that's another question. Um, Aaron talked about open theism. Um, and there are some people who want to be theists in the sense that I have defined, a personal transcendent being, um, for whom uh, the static conception of a God in eternity who doesn't change um, seems a little bit too Greek and not enough biblical. And so uh, Nick Walterstorff has a wonderful paper called God Everlasting in which he argues that uh, Christians shouldn't think of God. And now he, he means God in, in my sense as a personal being precisely uh, of, of the sort I, I mentioned. Uh, we shouldn't think of God as eternal, but as everlasting. Uh, as God as, uh, in some sense, temporal, that's not identical with our temporality, but which has some way of moving along with the world of creation and the world of covenant and so forth so that there is change in God. Um, I suppose Nick probably would have been excommunicated from the church in Geneva if he said that a few centuries earlier. But he waited till the right century uh, to say that. Um, so, so I, uh, I mean, he had tenure. He had tenure, yeah. So um, just what Jeff means by God is plastic, um, it, it, it could mean several different things. And I'm, I don't know. Uh, I won't try to speak for Jeff. All right. So, um, Dr. Bussell, thank you very much.